Hey there. Welcome to Character in Context, episode 174, and it's called Help! My kids are asking about Hagar's story in Genesis. And so this is going to be something completely different. When I began teaching the kids um, Genesis in October 2020, I knew the day would come when I would have to decide how to handle some truly risque and even horrifying sexual material with the kids. Since I really don't look good in an ankle bracelet, my solution is to teach parents the background material, which will allow me to be more deliberate and cautious with how I handle the material for kids, skipping over what I need to skip over. Now, I did write a book called Context for Adults, Sexuality, Social Identity, and Kinship Relations in the Bible, where I covered this sort of material for the sake of parents hopefully being able to answer the hard questions as they come up. The situation between Abram, Sarai, and Hagar is more complex than it first appears. And yet, it's also important to address this text from a modern standpoint because passages like this and others are often used to groom little girls into believing that certain activities and relationships are okayed by God just because this one involved a patriarch in the Bible. Now, in Utah recently, which is just south of where I live, they banned a ton of books from school libraries because of sexual content. And the day they passed the bill, I knew that the Bible would be on the list and that no one would be able to argue based on the often disturbing sexual content. No one would be able to argue that there should be an exception. And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what's happening. The Bible talks about incest, sexual slavery, wartime rape, seduction, gang rapes, both hetero and homosexual, older men marrying young girls, concubinage, bestiality, and ritual prostitution. And this content has been used historically to groom children, boys and girls both, when presented outside of historical context and without teaching the kids that it's absolutely wrong. And that's not okay with me. Parents and other caregivers need to be able to teach kids about the ugly bits in ways that won't scar them for life and so that the material cannot be used against them later. This protected actually my own kids from molestation. Now, we will have another one of these episodes when the kids and I reach the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain, and again with Lot and his daughters. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have years' worth of blogs and transcripts at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my websites. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com 
and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how He wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want, although I'm not sure I actually use the scripture this time. So in Genesis 15, God promises Abram a baby, but gives no information on how that baby is going to happen. Sarai isn't mentioned at all. One of the things I will be stressing with the kids is that God often gives promises without a lot of information in order to test us to see if we will wait on him. And this situation right here is ground zero for that in the Bible. According to ancient Near Eastern law, we have a couple of traditions that were in play at this time. First, Abram had the right to send Sarai away and get another wife because producing an heir wasn't just a nice bonus to a relationship, but a matter of life and death. People needed to be cared for in their old age, and that duty fell to the firstborn son and his wife. Isn't it interesting now that the job almost always falls to daughters? Something to think about, but I digress. Abram could have divorced Sarai, and no one in the outside world would have anything negative to say about it. However, with Abram and Sarai, there is a unique wrinkle in that the marriage is an endogamous one, meaning within the clan, and more specifically within the immediate family as they were half-siblings. Divorcing your half-sister for anything less than gross immorality was going to be messy, even if she wasn't producing an heir. As far as the reproductive beliefs at the time, the baby itself was believed to be exclusively the fruit of the man. A man deposited seed within the woman, and that seed was believed to be a really teeny tiny miniature baby. The woman was considered to be the field the seed was planted in, or in modern-day language, we would call her job that of an incubator. A fertile field would produce babies, and a barren field would not. And that's exactly how we got that sort of language as a carryover from the time before we knew about eggs and sperm. Or we didn't also didn't know that men could actually have reproductive issues, and a lot of people still don't know that. Until the end of the 17th century, people had no idea of the science behind reproduction and the language of the Bible reflects not poetic ideas, but their very real beliefs. God used that same language to communicate with them. When the Bible says Sarai was barren, it means that in the eyes of the world, she was a lifeless field. Being barren myself, I can assure you that these ideas are still out there. Henry VIII never thought he was part of the problem and that it was his little swimmies producing girls instead of boys. Instead, he believed that his wives' wombs were incapable of producing boys out of the seed that he was giving them. And it might sound odd, but this was actually based upon what they could observe from agriculture. I mean, they didn't have microscopes, you know. So although Abram had the right to an heir legally, so did Sarai. Sarai could use precedent from other ancient Near Eastern societies 
to force her husband to take a servant as a concubine. This was Sarai's right in that world, and it protected women from divorce. A concubine was not a full wife. At most, she might become a lesser wife, but mainly she was a baby maker, or she could be a sex slave. As a servant and slave to Sarai, Hagar had no ownership over her own body and no right to say no. And she probably didn't even, wouldn't have even think that that was possible. For that matter, neither did Bilhah or Zilpah later on in Genesis. According to the law, precedents, and wisdom codes of other nations in that area, the child birthed to Hagar would belong to Sarai, and Sarai would name the child. Sarai would be seen as vindicated through the birth of this child and would be seen as the legal mother, fulfilling her social role as mother and a wife. The pressure on Sarai to provide an heir was beyond anything we can probably imagine. I know the pressures to have a baby, and especially in the church community where everything revolves around families, and barren women are often treated as sinners or cursed, as though wombs are magical fairy boxes instead of complex organs that can be malfunctioning and damaged just like a heart or a spleen. Sarai was now in her 70s, and the time had come and gone with nothing to show for it. Even the serving girls with babies would see themselves as greater than Sarai in terms of fulfilling their community roles. Abram and Sarai lived within what we would call a dyadic social community. They were not individuals the way we are. They couldn't define themselves apart from the community and vice versa. The way they saw themselves was directly tied to the way the rest of the community viewed them. That's why honor and shame were so important. No one had independent thoughts about themselves that would deviate from how others saw them. And so the Bible says that Sarai was barren. That is the only way we ever see her defined because in failing to be able to produce a child, she was not even meeting the minimum standards of what it meant to be a woman within their community. That's who women were. They were human beings who married and had children. Nowadays, you can look at me and barrenness bone won't be the first thing that you would think about me. You might take notice of my appearance, my lack of fashion sense, my role as a Bible teacher, my education as a scientist. You would judge me largely by how I treat you. That wasn't Abram and Sarai's world at all. They would have felt shame at having no children, but especially Sarai. She was seen as a failure and people would not call Abram crazy for taking another wife. Actually, they call him crazy for not taking another wife, sister or not. Dyadic social communities operate through very severe forms of peer pressure. Think about being in high school forever. And so chapter 16 opens with Sarai asserting her rights to Abram and over Hagar by presenting her as an Isha, a woman to her husband. I want you to notice that never once in this entire chapter do either Sarai or Abram ever refer to Hagar by her name. In fact, we only know her name because the narrator tells us, and 
In verse 8, the angel of the Lord calls her by her name. Although Hagar is used and treated as, as subhuman, and she certainly had no control over her life, God identified her by name first and only then by her community role as Sarai's maidservant. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Hagar is forced to have sexual relations with an 85-year-old man until she becomes pregnant. Although she wouldn't have even considered resisting, she was likely very young when she was given to Sarai in Egypt, presumably by Pharaoh as part of the bride price, and definitely would have been a virgin. How would she have looked in this? Well, we can really only guess. Potentially bearing the heir to the clan would definitely be a positive for her and would set her in the clan's estimation in some ways above Sarai, who couldn't have babies. Conceivably, Hagar would have seen this as a promotion since she had never had control over her body before this. And in fact, women's bodies in those days belonged to any number of males and not to themselves, either father, uncle, brother, husband, master, or combination of these. There were no laws in place to protect slaves, much less female slaves. To be used in this way was expected, and it was a given. Hagar couldn't have said no and likely was making the best of a situation she could never have prevented. Today we rightly look on this situation and say she was raped, because there can be no idea of consent when one person owns another and her run away would place Hagar in terrible danger from the elements, wild beasts, and people. Abram and Sarai had complete power over her, and she would have accepted that as part of her life and her expected position within the household. She would have seen the benefits of this arrangement, certainly, but that isn't the same thing as to claim it made her happy. Enslaved people have always had to be pragmatist, which means that they found wisdom in seeing their situations for exactly what they were and did what they had to do to get along and stay alive. Enslavement, in fact, was normal until just a few hundred years ago. For one person to have absolute power over another person was normal. For women to be beneath notice by both men and other women was normal. It is this which makes God's treatment of Hagar so astonishing and a wonderful lesson for us all. Now, once Hagar became pregnant, there would have been celebration and rejoicing, and Hagar would have become quite the celebrity in the camp, I imagine. This despite the fact that infant mortality was shockingly high, and children often weren't even named until after they were weaned. Now, this is something seen a lot in ancient societies. And it's why we see a huge celebration at the weaning of Isaac, because it meant he was now viable and likely to survive. Until then, everyone was just holding their breath. In addition, Sarai didn't feel as though she could move to expel Ishmael until Isaac had reached that point of survivability. But back to Hagar's pregnancy, because, you know, this is all way in the future here. Hagar begins to despise Sarai as her abdomen swells. Hagar was young and Sarai was 75 years old. 
Sarai can feel herself being eclipsed in the eyes of the household by Hagar, and Hagar can feel it too. It was likely the first time in Hagar's life that she felt important, and the eyes and hopes of everyone rested on the baby she carried. If it was a boy, then they were saved and secure, and if it was a girl, Abram would return to her again for another baby. Either way, she would be giving birth to the savior of the clan. Her son would be a very rich man, and she would be the natural mother of a very rich man. It gets so frustrating for Sarai that she goes to Abram and blames him for the entire problem with Hagar. Is she wrong or right? In a community like this, it was up to the patriarch, or the male in charge, to make sure that everyone was in their place and that their roles were clearly spelled out so that there was no confusion. Sarai was complaining that Hagar didn't know who she was anymore, and she was behaving above her station. She wasn't acting like a submissive slave anymore, and that really chaps Sarai's hide something fierce. Hagar was behaving like the matriarch of the clan, the highest-ranking woman, instead of the serving girl to the matriarch. This was a big crisis which could tear apart the entire household if Abram was allowing this to happen without correction, something that only he could authorize and accomplish. After all, Hagar was carrying Abram's child, and Sarai couldn't move against her without permission from that child's father. Abram hears Sarai's concerns, agrees with her, and gives her carte blanche to treat Hagar however she wants in order to bring Hagar back into line. And you know what? This is a horrifying mess because Abram didn't take care of this himself. Instead, he sent the angriest person in the camp to handle it. Sarai was humiliated, infuriated, confused about her standing, and undoubtedly jealous. And now she had been given permission to do whatever was in her heart to do. Would she treat Hagar, you know, whose name she never even uses, with understanding, seeing that Hagar is a young and confused girl having a baby she never asked to have in the first place with an old man? Or, um... Would Sarai treat her wisely as someone who would be adopting this child once it was weaned? Sarai had wanted to be built up through Hagar's womb, but something happened and all that changed. Sarai never considers Ishmael to be her child, never protects him, never loves him. In fact, once Abram tells her to deal with it however she wants, she beats Hagar so badly that Hagar runs away into the wilderness. In the wilderness, the angel of the Lord comes to her and calls out to her by name. Sarai never called her by name, and neither did Abram in this story. But God sees something more than Abram and Sarai see. God sees a human being who is first Hagar, an individual, before calling her by her community identity as Sarai's slave. He asks Hagar, where she has come from, and what she is doing. And Hagar tells him that she is running away from her mistress, Sarai. Likely, the angel of the Lord disappoints her when he tells her to go back and submit to Sarai. 
And I imagine this means not so much to submit to abuse, but to humble herself to the point where Sarai is no longer feels threatened and humiliated. And this is the point where something extraordinary happens. God blesses Hagar in much the same way he blessed Abram. He says, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count, which sounds almost exactly like Genesis 15.5. In other words, Yahweh will make Hagar into a great nation. Then he said, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. Ishmael means God hears. And this is the first of a great many references to Yahweh hearing the cry of the afflicted, oppressed, and suffering. In fact, it's a common theme running all the way from Genesis through Revelation. Kings in the ancient Near East wanted to be remembered as righteous and just, and that required doing certain things on behalf of those who were being treated poorly. Notice that it was Hagar who will name the child Ishmael and not Sarai. When we get to the births of the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, we will see that those children are named by Rachel and Leah. But Sarai will have no part in the naming of Ishmael, despite it being her right by ancient custom. The angel further says, This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. Now, this sounds like an insult, but it really isn't. It does mean that Ishmael will not be living the life expected of a son of Abram. Wild donkeys live out in the wilderness, away from civilization. And he is portrayed as someone who will be a thorn in everyone's side and difficult to live around, especially since he'll never be all that far away. Ishmael is going to be an ever-present reminder to Abram and Sarai about what they did as well, and to Isaac, too, once he grows up. Ishmael is going to be his own man, living life on his own terms. Ishmael, most importantly, will be a free man and powerful, not a slave, which bodes well for Hagar, too. And now we get to something unique in the Bible. Hagar is the only human to name Yahweh, calling him El Roi, which means God sees me. She says, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? And so the well is named Be'er Lachai which means the well of the living one who sees me. Hagar got up and went back and had her baby, and Abram named him Ishmael, which means that Abram claimed Ishmael as his own, even though Sarai was clearly not wanting to be involved anymore. As the chapter ends, Abram is 86 and Sarai is 76. Now, about 10 years before I became a believer, there was a movie called The Handmaid's Tale, based on a book which was based rather loosely upon what happened with Abram and Sarai and Hagar. In fact, that was my first exposure to this account, and it was downright horrific. But I also think the way we read this account in the church is way too clinical and unrealistic. These were three real people in a terrible situation that only got worse. I believe that if we don't engage emotionally with the story, we come away with shallow understanding that, and they're just way too easy to discount, and they, and they won't be useful or challenging. 
when we do that. In chapter 15, Abram's told that his descendants will be enslaved and treated very badly. This gave him a heads up how to perhaps look at his own slaves and treat them better than he otherwise would, but that didn't happen. There was obviously some sort of disconnect between the idea of his descendants being slaves and the people he owned. That's the sort of thinking we can never afford to engage in. Someone who is enslaved, oppressed, and or suffering has to be every bit as human to us as our own family members. Otherwise, we can always justify whatever evils we wish to inflict upon them. We either humanize people or dehumanize people. Yesterday, well, yesterday when I was writing this last week, they began to find the sub-wreckage from that Titanic expedition. And yeah, what they did was foolhardy, but the comments I see out there are disturbing in the extreme. No matter what we think of their decision, they have loved ones who are still alive, hurting, and they really don't need to see jokes about how they ended up just like the people who died on the Titanic. In the same way, Hagar has to be every bit as real and precious to us as Abram and Sarai. When we read this account with them as the heroes, we're going to whitewash some pretty dastardly behavior on the part of two elderly people against someone who was likely little more than a child. And when we make excuses for them, when the Bible makes no excuses for their behavior, we're teaching our kids that if you are a believer and someone powerful and important in the kingdom, then there are different rules for how we can treat people. When we look at what happened with Hillsong, Mars Hill, Bill Gothard, Jonestown, Bill Hybels, and too many others, we can see that this mindset is destroying the most vulnerable among us, especially women and young girls, but also young boys. Abram and Sarai's behavior in Genesis 16 wasn't godly. It was 100% ancient Near Eastern. They did nothing that the Hittites, Babylonians, Assyrians, or Canaanites wouldn't have done before or after. Yes, they should have waited on God, and that's the easy takeaway, but there's more to it than that. They should have called Hagar by her name, and they should have treated her like the angel of the Lord treated her. Yes, she foolishly treated Sarai badly, but we would do well to remember that she was very young and had never had an ounce of honor or power in her life. It clearly went to her head. She wasn't prepared for it. The angel of the Lord came to her as one who was in need of an Ezer, a helper. He hears her. He sees her. He makes her promises. He gives her a hope and a future. Abram and Sarai were using her to produce an heir, while God was making a way for her to be vindicated as the mother of a multitude. So I hope this helps you understand the ancient Near Eastern context of Genesis 16, Hagar's story. I'm going to start next week to take the kids through it. Obviously, I'm going to have to present the material differently, and I'm still planning on how to do that. But anyway, thanks a lot for tuning in this week, whether you know you're doing it because I told you to on the last kids broadcast or not. 
humanizing the people in the Bible is very important. And just as important is not worshiping any biblical figures except for Yahweh and Yeshua and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> anyway, you take care.